What is up, y'all? Kevin Kuhn here from Athlete Factors. This is the Athlete Factors podcast. My guest today is track and field royalty and future PhD, Shalep. How are you? I'm doing great, Kevin. Thanks for having me. <laughs> what an introduction. <laughs> yeah, well, that's how we do it here. So um, if you're familiar with the steeplechase at all, and I am, then people know who you are, right? Like, people know you. You're kind of a big deal. Sometimes. Some. Maybe, yeah, uh-huh. a little bit. <laughs> I think you're a big deal. So I'm super excited to have you on the podcast today, not only to talk a little bit about track and field, but also to talk a little bit about what you've been uh, researching in the past and perhaps what you'll be researching in the future. So um, if you will, please give us a little bit of your background, athletically, academically, professionally, etc. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right, so I'm Shalea Kip. Um, I am a middle to distance runner. Um, I guess it started, I started running um, collegiately at University of Colorado in Boulder, um, where I learned about this really crazy event called the steeplechase. Uh, and my coach suggested that I try it out. Um, and I, I tried it out and um, I sucked at it. <laughs> That's how it goes for a lot of people. Don't worry. Um, literally two months later, he said, you know, what? I think we should try the steeplechase again. Uh, we tried it again and I did some water jumps on that, that go around. And he looked me in the eye after two water jumps and said, you're going to be a steeplechaser. Hmm. Um, yeah, I went on in my collegiate career to, uh, win an NCAA title in the steeplechase, make an Olympic team, make a world championship team. Uh, I think he nailed the event just right for me. <laughs> so that's kind of Sounds my like athletic it. background. Um, at the same time, while I was at CU, uh, I was really interested in integrative physiology. Mm. Um, I started working in a lab that looked at biomechanics and energetics of human running. Being a runner myself, I was super interested in what was happening to my body. Mm. Um, I finished college and I wanted to stay and run professionally with my coaches. And the um, principal investigator, um, the professor that ran the lab, asked if I wanted to stay and do a master's degree with him. And I said, I would absolutely love to do that. Uh, so my life continued in parallel where I kept running um, and I kept um, researching things I was interested in. Nice. That's so awesome. So yeah. there's there's not too many people who, uh, when it comes to like professional athletics, can do both at the same time. So what was that like? <laughs> yeah, uh, challenging. And people ask me how I did it. And I say, I'm still trying to figure out how to do it. <laughs> um, it's a balancing act. Uh, in, in 2016, it was another Olympic year, and I actually took uh, that spring semester off from my master's so I could focus more on running. Because when you're running at such an elite level, the, the hardest thing is actually to recover. Like, I could fit everything into my schedule, but what I was noticing in the semester leading up to it was, like, I was falling asleep during classes. Like, I'd go and do a hard track session you know, and then I'd go sit through a two hour lecture and then my coaches wanted me in the weight room. And then my coaches wanted to me to, you know, do you do a second, you know, six mile run. And, you know, that's what other professional athletes would have been doing, but, you know, trying to add the extra stress of an academic load on top of it made it difficult. So, um, one thing I had to do was say, okay, semester of 2016, 
Olympic year really important. Okay, we're going to back off on the schoolwork and we're going to prioritize running. So uh, juggling and knowing when to put which foot forward, I guess. Gotcha. That's got to be a nice problem to have from everybody else's perspective (laughs) on the outside. (laughs) Oh, your life's so rough. You have to pick between, you know, two really fun things. (laughs) Yeah. Learning the stuff that you really want to and, you know, being a pro. It's rough life. That's so awesome though. So did you kind of always foresee yourself being a professional runner and also continuing your education? Like, like 10 years ago, let's say, what were, what were you thinking your future would be like? Okay. So like I'm a freshman in college. What do I think my, yeah. Um, freshman in college, I come in to see you. I'm not our top runner. I'm not the top freshman girl, right? I'm not the t- second freshman girl, you know, maybe somewhere in the you know, top handful. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't even make varsity my first year as a freshman. Um, so no, I had no aspirations of becoming a professional runner or making an Olympic team at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, I think gradually as I gained confidence and I, um, I really stuck to the training and I really just did what my coaches said. Um, I'm a workhorse. I think then it started becoming more realistic to me to think that running could have a bigger part in my future. Um, as for school, I, I think I knew the whole time I would do some sort of uh, post-professional schooling after my undergrad. Um, mm-hmm. Most people that go into you know, physiology or kinesiology will do some sort of education after. I mm-hmm. thought really at that time it would have been more like... Um, nursing or a physician's assistant. I didn't really know enough, but I knew I, I liked that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, I knew I'd continue with education. No idea that running would really still play a role <laughs> in my life. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Sometimes like you think you've got everything planned out and then other times you're like, mm, no idea. Let's just ride the wave and see what happens. No. And it's great, right? I keep this document on my desktop and it's called the plan of life. And it was like all the classes I would take and like my plan for like the next five years during undergrad, none of it. Like, right. It's like you make a plan, you follow the plan, you, you throw out the plan and like it's like <laughs> your life becomes something totally new. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, a couple of things that I plan on talking about were um, two of the studies. Uh, okay. You know what? Before we do that, let's jump into kind of how we got connected. So, um, so I'm scrolling through Twitter, you know, a couple weeks ago and exactly just, and I see this thread all about ground reaction force and I'm like, okay, let's, let's, you know, see where this rabbit hole goes. And I'm like looking and I'm seeing videos of triple jumpers and, and slow motion video of these guys landing and it's like oh my goodness it looks like these huge shock waves traveling through the tibia and i'm like oh man that is rough um <laughs> and then yeah. yeah and then i see like uh what is it a a gif a gif i don't know how it's pronounced of what looks like somebody landing at an at an angle and i'm like huh what is this and it's you discussing ground reaction force landing for steeplechase. And then I'm like, oh my goodness, this name is familiar. And then... <laughs> this person's a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> Just like me. So, um, but yeah, so kind of followed that trail and saw what you were saying. And 
um, was like, holy cow, this would be a great opportunity to talk about one of the things that I'm really interested in. Um, knock on wood, I never got injured doing steeplechase, but yes, but that happens a lot. People get, you know, people get seriously injured. I remember, oh goodness, I couldn't tell you how long ago, 10, 15 years ago, I remember seeing a professional race during the summer. It was somewhere in Europe. And the steeplechase, uh, the the men's steeplechase field was like so tightly packed that the guys in the middle to the back of the pack, like they just jump when the people in front of them are jumping because they could barely see the barrier. And some dude jumped too early, came down and smacked his face, boom, right on the barrier. It was bad. They like, yeah, it was really bad. So like, it's a dangerous event. So yeah. So anyway, all that to say, that's kind of that's kind of how I came across you on the. Isn't on the, the Twitter Twitterverse verse. awesome? <laughs> yes, it's pretty amazing. So yeah, yeah. It's cool yeah. Um, okay, so yeah, like you said, someone tweeted about um, high ground reaction forces in the triple jump. So I'll start with actually defining what a ground reaction force is, and that's just going to simply be the force that. Uh, when you land on the ground, the ground exerts up on your body, and conversely, the force that your body exerts back down on the ground. If you remember that guy named Newton, forces are all, yeah, opposite and equal. Equal and opposite. Uh, there you go. Um, so somebody said, what was it, like 14 uh, units of body weight? So you always normalize ground reaction forces to units of body weight, because I could say, you know, it was like 1,500 Newtons, but that's going to differ between me and like a linebacker. So mm. normalize it to that individual's body weight. Um, and they were bragging that the triple jump was something like 14 times your body weight. And they're like, can anyone up that? And I said, okay, can't really up that. <laughs> but we know from this study that we did that steeplechasers can exert up to seven times their body weight. And if you think about it, a steeplechaser has to do that seven times, right? Mm -hmm. How many jumps is the triple jumper taking? Um, anyways, and so the photo, I mean, the photo. The and guess, they get a ton of rest. And they get a ton of rest, right? And and there's also hurdles that you're going over with running and just the regular uh, force of each step. So exactly. I was trying to, you know, help the steeplechasers, you know, look good there. <laughs> I don't know if that came across to everyone. I was picking up on it. You You picked up. Awesome. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but really, that's not that surprising because we know that you know steeplechase is known for being this injurious sport, right? Mm -hmm. uh, people tend to get injured, and it's not surprising when you look at how high those ground reaction forces are. Um, for sure. So, um, yeah. So it was kind of through that that I reached out and I was like, "Hey, would love to talk with you about you know about this more." And you were like, "Sweet, let's do it." And sent me this, the whole study so I could read it along with some other fun reading materials, which is great. Uh, <laughs> I felt like I sent you too much after. <laughs> I was like, I sent him a mathematical modeling paper. Maybe I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I was taking notes and most of the notes were like I big boxes it. and question marks. Like I was like, oh, I don't know what this is. Maybe we won't get to that. Yeah. <laughs> Start with the steeplechase. Like, what questions yeah. did you have from that paper? Like, you need so, to explain the methodology more? Yes. So before we do that, um, let's jump into a little bit of, in general, um, let's do this. 
what before we get into the paper what are some of the basics of how how we can predict and uh determine running performance oh okay so we're taking a big physiological step back yes yes all right okay and we're saying we're saying endurance distance running here yes good because that's the that's the domain i like (laughs) yeah uh, so in general, we say that the three predicting parameters are an individual's VO2 max, their maximal oxygen uptake, um, their lactate threshold, or the fraction um, of VO2 max that they run at, and then their running economy, uh, with running economy being my favorite pet variable. Um, that's essentially like your, your gas mileage. You know, If an individual uses only um, you know, five gallons you know, per mile, or you could think of I don't know how many calories you want to think per mile. If you use less calories per mile, you know, you're more economical, essentially. Gotcha. Three big parameters. Okay. So what are, yes. So what are like, what are the basic ways to improve those parameters? Oh boy. Okay. Um, I don't want to get into the nitty gritty of, you know, all this type of training is, you know, for your VO2 max and this one's for your lactate threshold. Um, in general, I'm going to answer that question more broadly. I'd say the best way to improve those variables is going to be um, long-term continuous training, right? So really de- developing that aerobic system, you know, over the course of um, multiple years, right? So these adaptations take a long time to really produce, um, especially when we think about running economy, which is probably the variable of the three that I think gets the least amount of attention. Um, people love saying, you know, you need to run above your lactate threshold if you're going to actually improve that lactate threshold. Um, but then people don't really talk about how do you improve your economy. Mm. And for that, I would say is it has to be long duration training um, with an aerobic base. And my favorite example of that is there is a seven year follow up on Paula Radcliffe, who was the former uh, marathon women's world record holder. And they looked at her starting when she was 16, and they followed her over a course of seven years. And the biggest thing they showed with just this continuous amount of training is um, over time, her body can figure out, you know, how to tune those tendons. So, you know, they're a little more optimal, you know, probably there's some mitochondrial adaptations, so she's a little more efficient there. And over time, you see her have like a 6% improvement in economy, which is just huge. Hmm. Oh. Wow. That's my that's my kind of broader answer to your question. <laughs> that's perfect. That's perfect. That's kind of uh, I kind of jumped the gun a little bit because that's probably a little bit more related to the other study that you sent me. But I I just I wanted to know your take on that right right from the get go. So you had to know. <laughs> I, I had to know. I had to know. Okay. So <laughs> we got um, it out there. Yeah, <laughs> it's one of those things that I I find so interesting because uh, like. Like in the weight room, we can make changes neuromuscularly like six to eight weeks. In fact, we can we can adapt the nervous system almost in real time. Um, somebody comes into me in pain and they can leave not in pain. Like we can make changes really quick. But when it comes to these aerobic adaptations, like takes a long time. Buckle down. Yeah. You got to be patient and you got to yes. be consistent. So yep. that that can be frustrating for some people to hear. But that can also be like, I've got, I've got this one client who he's like, Hey, I'm not the most athletic. I know I'll never be the most athletic, but I'm willing to do 
all the things that everybody else doesn't want to do. And so he does all the little things and he's in it for the long term. He's like, I'm I'm planning out two years from now how my performance is going to look. And he gets it like he understands. Yes. So I love that. Yeah. And that's why he's like he's training and competing at a level now that is way, way beyond anybody thought he'd be doing like three years ago. And he's just like, exactly. He just does it. He just sticks to it. Um, So yes, he does. He gets it. So back on track. My bad, y'all. Sorry about it. So can you tell us a little bit about the differences between uh, ground reaction forces like walking versus jogging versus running versus sprinting like what what are the differences between all all of those things um i've heard a lot lately about some numbers that i i I haven't actually looked up whether it's accurate or not but i've heard people talk about sprinting and ground reaction forces to levels that i don't even want to say because i i might sound stupid so if you will educate us all on that Yeah. So there's going to be a ground reaction force for every step you take. And the biggest thing that's going to determine the magnitude of that ground reaction force is going to be primarily the speed that you're walking, jogging, running, or sprinting at. Uh, So I don't know what the sprinting ground reaction force numbers you heard, um, but they can get get large. um, And I'm I'm less familiar with that. Um, To help put it in perspective, I'd say general, uh, you know, easy running, we'll say a seven minute to eight minute mile, you're probably exerting two to three uh, times your body weight while you run. Gotcha. So that, that's, that's pretty mild. Um, and then that's going to increase as speed gets faster and faster. You know, you start running a six minute mile, maybe a five minute mile. You could see that get up to, uh, you know, three, four times body weight. Yeah, sprinting, I'm scared to put out any like exact numbers because <laughs> I haven't looked at that in quite a while. Um, gotcha. I've heard yeah. I've heard some people say up to 10 times body weight and I was just like I don't know if I'm so sure about that. Yeah, I guess the other thing I'd say is when we did our steeplechase study, right? So I just told you velocity really matters. Um we controlled the speed of the athletes. Um and so these were all collegiate steeplechasers we had run and so we had them go off the water jump for males at um 9 minute 3k pace and then 10 minute 3k pace for uh Females. And we thought 10 minutes is a competitive collegiate, you know, female steeple time. Nine minutes is competitive for males. Um, if it it's was just a like, little bit faster than my PR by uh, 10 seconds. You know, so but if it was, if it was, you know, people up at, you know, diamond league world champ Olympic level, they're going to be going much faster. And those forces would be probably higher, um, exerted upon landing. Gotcha. So, yeah. Gotcha. Sweet. So, um, So let's talk about the differences between ground reaction forces when you're just running versus ground reaction forces in the steeplechase. Okay. So. So, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Okay, I got like excited. I was like, yeah, let's talk about it. Um, (laughs) Yeah, so actually to compare everything in our study, what we wanted to say is at that same pace running, how does that change now when you go over a barrier at that pace? Or, yeah, over the barrier at that same pace. Um, and the biggest thing we know that the barrier actually does to you is it's going to slow down your velocity. 
Um, but even with it kind of slowing down your velocity, because you got to navigate, you know, this 30 inch, 36 inch barrier, um, that force was really large. And in particular, you might be someone that's like me, and I am a constant heel striker. So every four, every footstep, I'm going boom, 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 boom. But when you land off a dry hurdle or you land off a water jump, you always come down on your forefoot first and then land with your heel. And that is very, very important because that means when I'm normally running and I have that nice heel strike, it's going to be my calcaneus that is getting that huge impact peak of the ground reaction force. But now when I land on one of those barriers, it's my metatarsals that is actually going to be um, experienced all that force. And if I never run on my forefeet, or I very rarely do, that's a huge amount of force. And my bones have not gone through the proper adaptations to be able to sustain that force um, and it could lead someone like me to be more at risk for a stress fracture in that area if my coaches weren't ever really careful and having me gradually get into steeplechase very slowly. If they had said, Shalaya, go and do, you know, 10 water jumps your first day of practice. <laughs> no, big no, 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 right? I never had yeah. that much force on my metatarsals. Right. They go, Shalaya, you're doing just two water jumps. Okay, you know, you know, two weeks later, we can start doing three, you know, gradually let those bones adapt. Yeah, that's one of the things that that I found really interesting in the study was, um, yeah, like that's a that's a novel stress. And if, totally. if, yeah, if you're used to landing on your midfoot, maybe you can transition into doing some water jumps a little bit faster. But if totally you're agree. if you're a heel striker and you're not aware of that and you don't know what's going to happen, and you just throw in a ton of of hurdle volume and water pit volume, like you're just asking for, uh, for a big problem. 100%. Yep. So that, yeah, I thought that was fascinating. Yeah. Um, so are there, are there big differences between like the amount of ground reaction that's taking place when you're, when you're jumping over a regular barrier and landing on the other side versus jumping? Not too many people are hurdling the water pit barrier, right? So um, so pushing off the water barrier and landing, uh, either in the water or out of the water. Okay. Yeah. So a couple of things there to unpack. Um, the first thing that we know that steeplechasers do when they approach a barrier is they want to accelerate. So we might see a little spike in those ground reaction forces because they have accelerated going into the barrier. Um, the second thing I'd say is we also made a force measuring water jump barrier. So when a steeplechaser comes uh, to the water jump, they come, they land on the barrier, or most of them, like you just said, their foot wraps around and then they push off mm. to go across that 12 foot pit of water. Mm -hmm. um, they've already expended so much uh, energy and they've lost so much velocity to actually get up onto the barrier that that force is actually pretty low when they're pushing off. Um, but the important thing we saw was actually how they rolled over and then that uh, horizontal push off forward. To get them yeah. across that barrier as much as possible without... Yeah, right. It's yeah. 12 feet long. you got yeah. to get across that pit of water. Yeah. So here's a little bit of, of steeplechase strategy, let's say. Because I, I, not to toot my own horn, but I could run an entire race dry if I wanted to. What? However, <sighs> however, <laughs> most of the time uh, clearing that water pit jump... I would land on two feet and I'd lose all momentum. And then, you know, you're starting from scratch. So 
So is there like uh, nobody's doing that in a in a serious race, right? Like everybody's basically pushing off the barrier. One foot is in the water, the next foot's out of the water. You're still running, and that's the way to do it. Yes, most people. You maintain your velocity better across that jump, and like you just said, that's the most important thing. Gotcha. So that's that's the tough thing is if you don't know how to hurdle then you're probably going to either waste some time in the air or slow way, way down and jump and land on two feet or exactly. So um, I think that was one of the, one of the things that I probably put a little too much emphasis on when I was in high school and college was like getting really good at hurdling, which was good, but like you are still running three K and like the faster you can run a three K like the better you're probably going to do. So that's one of those things that I'm like, yeah, but I could hurdle and it looked pretty, but you know, it, whatever. It's good for all the photos. For sure. <laughs> yes. That's it. That's it. I look pretty awesome. Like going off the water barrier and like, sometimes I'd have my arms out. Like I was flying. It was a beautiful thing, <laughs> but whatever. Anyway. So, <laughs> so what, uh, what are some of the other uh, important findings, I guess, from this study? Like, what were some of the practical takeaways that you got? Yeah, I'd say the biggest one probably was, you know, how to keep an athlete healthy, um, where on their foot they were landing, um, how large those forces could be. Um, that was previously unknown. Um, yeah, those are, those are kind of the big takeaways from that paper. Yeah. Um, it, it, I mean, it wasn't, um, it was an observational study, right? It was said, mm -hmm. our question is, how great are these forces? How are steeplechasers landing? And that's what we set out to, to measure. Also, not easy to, me to make a force measuring water jump pit, right? <laughs> uh, force plates can't have water on them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. That, that needs to be connected to a computer. Um, so, uh, yeah, I should also mention that it was a, a, uh, a waterless water jump pit that we made like the video you saw um yeah but you know most people are landing with only one foot it's it's very little water it's very shallow we don't think that water would really help uh, cushion the foot yeah and the force that much i think it said what like max of 10 centimeters of water Yeah, that, like, i think that was our guesstimate yeah so pretty pretty small yeah that's that's a few inches max like i can't imagine that's a lot of no a lot of force dissipation um one of the things that uh, was, I guess, probably the most confusing for me was the part about the anterior-posterior anterior horizontal forces. So can you explain, like, uh, kind of the difference between, like, when you're just running either on a treadmill or you're just running around a track, like, what's going on there uh, and, and how that differs from, like, leading up to to a water jump or, or not necessarily a water jump, but hurdling in general. So one of the things that I try to coach my steeple runners is to as much as possible accelerate into the barrier, like attack the barrier. Um, Cause if you're, slowing, I love that phrase too. Yeah. That was, that was one of the things that my coach taught me. So um, if you're not accelerating into that barrier, then like you're starting from scratch on the other side. So you want to maintain as much of that, you know, momentum as possible. So what, what exactly is that whole anterior posterior 
uh, uh, horizontal force because it was like, yeah, part of that was just, I wasn't quite sure. Okay, so the first thing I should say is we've been talking about grand reaction forces and we've been talking about them in the vertical direction. So the force being uh, exerted vertically. Um, When we start talking about anterior, posterior, we're now talking about the force that's being exerted front back. And then the third direction we can measure is going to be medial lateral. Um, Mm. So we did measure all three uh, directions of force, um, but always vertical is the the largest. And so people get excited and they just talk about that. Um, (laughs) Yes, but, but like you just said, anterior posterior forces or that horizontal force is really important because it's forced this way if you have a huge braking force going into that barrier you've lost all your velocity Mm. Um, in a single step you're always going to have a small braking phase and then you're going to have a um, a push-off phase of that same step if you're running at a constant velocity those two pieces are going to equal each other out If your braking portion is now larger, you're going to be slowing down. Um, If that uh, push-off phase is greater, you're going to be accelerating. Um, So when you tell an athlete to attack a barrier, essentially you're trying to minimize that braking force um, because they are going to have to slow down a little bit. Um, But you're trying to have them slow down not too much. Gotcha. So that's yeah, my that, best way to explain it, I think. No, that's that's perfect. That that helps out a lot because one of the numbers that I was seeing was like. Like, yeah, it's, if you're maintaining velocity, then those those forces are balanced out or they they negate each other. But the... Like, like you'd go, see on level treadmill running. Gotcha. And then was it like 22 times greater a decelerating force or something like that going over a hurdle? It, I think that sounds right. I can't remember now. Yeah, um, so that sh- was shocking to me. Like, oh, okay, like... Even when you're accelerating into a barrier or into a hurdle, you still and have it, to stop. Yes. You do. You totally do. You you transfer that horizontal force into some vertical force so that you can get over that thing. You can't run through it. It's you not a You can't run through it. No. <laughs> it's Those like a balance beam. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. That, oh. The, the videos and, and pictures of, I've seen of people running into them, it's just... It's... Oh, compilation videos, steeplechase. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's some funny ones of kids landing in water pits, like doing, fl- like hitting it and then just flipping over headfirst into the water. <laughs> okay, funny oh. story. Uh, I went to a college meet one time where... Like, it was so cold. Thankfully, my coach was like, hey, Kevin, it's too cold. There's ice in the pit. You're not running it. Thanks, coach. Good coach. Yes. There were other kids who had to, but not me. I was special. (laughs) (laughs) Thank goodness. So they're, like, taking an ice pick, basically, or, like, a big old rod and breaking up the ice. No joke. No joke. And then I went to another meet where... Someone had put goldfish into the water pit. I love just for fun. Like that. Yeah, like that's fun. That's fun. Yeah. So little rubber duckies. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. That's good stuff. So, yeah, that that whole research paper I found incredibly, incredibly interesting. Um, for those for those who want to dig into that a little bit more. Um, is that open access? Can people get a hold of that? 
It's not, but if people um, either send me a direct message on Twitter or a direct message on ResearchGate, um, I'm always happy to share it. Perfect. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. So the other paper you sent me, and we talked a little bit about this uh, when we talked last week, that I had no idea about was was the paper about, let me pull it up here, the comparison of the energetic cost of running in marathon racing shoes. So... Can you tell us a little bit about this study and why it's I'll so get cool? Ready. Yes. We're going to footwear now. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that study I sent you is with this, you know, Nike prototype shoe, right? Yes. Unnamed shoe. Um, and if you read the abstract right away, you see there's a 4% savings. Um, so spoiler alert, this is the Nike Vaporfly 4%. Um, this was the prototype of it. So it looked really ugly when we got it. It's not the nice, pretty colors it is now. Yeah. Um, but essentially, all the materials was the same. Uh, that P-Bax foam was there. You know, the um, curved carbon fiber plate was already embedded in it. Mm -hmm. um, and essentially, what happened was Nike asked my advisor um, at University of Colorado, Roger Cron. They said, hey, we got this shoe that we're really excited about. And we want someone to do some external testing on it. And he's like, sounds good. Um, so the first thing we say is, okay, we got a cool marathon racing shoe that's a prototype. What do you compare it to? Um, and so we said, well, you should compare it to probably the shoe that holds the current world record. And then the, uh, and the next shoe we chose was um, it had five of the top 10 marathon top performances ever. So that's the um, Adios Adidas Boost and then the mm. Nike Streak. Um, so at the time, Dennis Kipmeto was the uh, world record holder, and he had ran in that Adidas shoe, and then the Nike Streak, other sh marathon shoe that everyone was running in. That's we said, so okay. Cool. We compared this new ugly prototype to <laughs> these other two shoes. Yeah, I know. I keep saying it's ugly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the picture in in the study, it, it's not pretty. Like, it doesn't but, look... Right, like, I think people forget that because a lot of people say like, oh, placebo effect. Everyone knew this was like the Nike super shoe. I'm like, no, <laughs> we didn't know that. Like it was a prototype. Like um, it didn't look pretty compared to the other shoes. Mm -hmm. um, Nike also only sent us size 10 of the prototype. So we got size 10 of the other two shoes, which meant we had to find only runners that wore size 10. Mm. Um, and then Nike wanted this to be done in elite runners. So you had to also, you had to be a male, wear a size 10, and you had to run over uh, under a 31 minute 10K. Um, wow. So essentially, we were trying to recruit Cinderella. Yeah. Um, you, know, yeah. you can come Not to all of the shoe fits. Yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, yeah, that's yeah, a pretty then, small sample to, to pull from. Hey, we found 18 runners that it worked for, so. Well, it probably didn't hurt that you were studying it where you were studying it. Like, do, were, was everyone local? Everyone was local, Yeah. Uh, we had a few guys that were out just for the summer to train. So people love going to Boulder, Colorado to, for training in the summer. Um, we had a few top-notch guys that were just training out there. Yeah, yeah. that's sub-31 is no joke. A little, little quick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's – yeah, that's I, – I would not have been part of this study. Let's put it that way. And I couldn't either. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, but – oh, sorry. Go ahead. Um, I was just going to say, uh, the reason, one of the reasons that I find this super interesting, which is also something that was mentioned in the study, is um, 
for all those who think that, you know, like, hey, just just running barefoot is is optimal, right? Like, why why is that literally not the case? Yeah. So one thing that we know with shoes I'd first say is that if you add weight to your shoes or you put anything on your feet, I should say, adding mass to your feet um, makes you slower. Um, but there's a huge trade-off. If you don't have a, a shoe actually to help cushion your body, your muscles now have to provide extra energy to cushion your body instead. Um, mm. So while you might not have to carry mass on your feet, your muscles expend more energy to actually cushion yourself. So the cost of cushioning makes uh, running barefoot not uh, ideal from a performance standpoint. Gotcha. And that that changes up your landing mechanics as well, correct? Yeah, it does. And I think that's why some people like barefoot running. Um, I mean, you'll read people, you know, that have been injured and they try barefoot running and it's great for them. Fantastic. Um, I think about it solely from a performance standpoint Mm -hmm. and don't go and try to, you know, run your fastest 10K without a shoe because that shoe actually is going to be storing some of the energy for you and releasing it. Um, And if, if the shoe's not doing that, your muscles are doing it, and that's going to be very uh, expensive. Gotcha. You've got to like land with a lot more knee bend or a lot more hip flexion, or is that the case? Yeah. Uh, yeah. A lot of times when you take someone out of a shoe, if they're a heel striker like me, they would transition to a forefoot strike mm. pattern. Um, in that case, um, yeah, it would change your ankle moment. It would change your knee moment. So yeah, you get you get a whole host of changes. Gotcha. Yeah. Not the moment ideal. is that rotational force around that joint. Gotcha. Yeah. Awesome. So what's the uh, what was the basic setup of this study and and how did how were you able to compare all of these shoes and all that? Right. Okay, so we had our 18 Cinderella's um, and we had them come in <laughs> for three different days. Um, and on each day we had them randomized to a different running speed. Um, so one day that running speed was 14 kilometers per hour. Um, that's about a 702 minute mile. Another day they might've been assigned to our 16 kilometers per hour. That's about a roughly six minute mile. And then our third day was 18 kilometers per hour. Um, that's a 522 mile. So those are pretty, they get up to a pretty fast speed. Mm-hmm. Um, they could run at those speeds submaximally. So this is an individual that can run 522 pace and essentially be carrying on a conversation. Wow. When they came in for whatever day they had, um, they had a randomized order of shoes. So they might run in um, the Nike Streak, the Adidas Boost, and then the Prototype. And then we would mirror that. So then they would run in the Prototype, the Streak, the Adidas Boost. Um, So each trial was five minutes long. Um, We got the amount of energy they expended during each five-minute trial. And then we averaged it together um, in that crossover counterbalanced effect. Um, to get how much energy in each shoe they use. And regardless of speed, what we found was on average, individuals used 4% less energy to run in the prototype than both the Adidas Boost and the Nike Streak. So that's where that 4% number comes from. That's so crazy that it can it can have that much of a difference. And there was basically like no difference between the other two shoes. It's enormous. Yeah. It's enormous. There's basically no statistical difference between the other two running shoes, correct? Correct. Correct. Yeah. It's insane. So what was it that accounted for that 
huge difference because I assume like there's some there's some technology in the other running shoes as well. Like it wasn't like, you know, these were the shoes that had been worn for the previous record and then some of the top, you know, the top performers. So like how how can we get such a huge difference? Yeah, yeah. You already have the top shoe on the market and now a new prototype. Um, so we, in that paper I sent you, we include some hysteresis curves of the shoe. So when we load the shoe up to 2,000 newtons and then we release it, um, the biggest thing that we saw was, one, the amount of energy that that foam was able to store, but then also the amount of that energy it actually gave back to the athlete. Mm. Um, so we know that it was both very compliant and resilient. Um, so compliant, it stored a lot of energy and resilient, it actually returned that uh, energy to an individual. Um, so mechanically, that's how the shoes differed in the, their uh, their structure. Gotcha. So what role did the carbon fiber plate play into, into I guess, all of that? Yeah, um, it's a really hard question to answer because if we <laughs> wanted to know you know, what is the foam responsible for? What is the, you know, plate responsible for? We need a shoe that only has, you know, the foam or the shoe that mm. only has the plate with a different foam. And we didn't have that sort of setup. So we couldn't um, say, you know, we think, you know, the, the foam is doing all this and the plate is doing that because um, the way the shoes were set up, we don't have that. Um, there have been some subsequent studies um, where they've cut the plate in multiple places to see, you know, if you change that longitudinal bending stiffness, you know, how does the shoe perform now? Mm. Um, and spoiler alert, it looks like the foam is doing a lot of the work. So gotcha. That's about all we know right now. Awesome. That's super interesting because like there's, there's quite a few people that I follow on like Instagram who like to talk all about, you know, it's all about the carbon fiber plate. And so buy my carbon fiber insoles or like you can have the same effect, just slide this into your shoe and stuff like that. And I'm like, mm, probably not. Where's the data? Like show me because yeah. there's like, I, I had a feeling there was a lot more to it than just the carbon fiber. Um, but yeah, that's one of those things that, so it, it, it was probably more so the foam. That's the guess. Wow. Yeah. Still waiting for some scientists to answer that question. <laughs> Why not you? Because now I'm doing respiratory mechanics like we talked about. You're busy. I moved you... up the body. <laughs> <laughs> so many questions I want to ask and answer. Awesome. So uh, that pretty much covers all of that. What are, oh, one more thing about, uh, about the running shoe. Uh, I noticed that like the ground contact times were different between the prototype shoe and the other shoes. So why do you think that was the case? Why were, why were they, they touching the ground longer basically? Yeah. Was that significant? Cause now I can't remember. Yeah, um, <laughs> <laughs> I think it was. So it was, um, the thing is it? there's a, there's a second paper to that paper, which I held back on sending to you, mm. um, where we do a, a full, you know, gate analysis. We did three dimensional motion capture with the force measuring treadmill. Um, and I think it no longer was significant. Um, oh, okay. so it would have been this beautiful story if it increased, uh, contact time. Yeah. Um, yeah. but I think overall actually, couldn't really explain it with contact time. Couldn't explain it with stride length or stride frequency. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, and the ground reaction profiles. I mean, you, you saw the figure. They look they look slightly different, but nothing was significant there. So we couldn't really tell it apart there. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Well, that answers that question. <laughs> In the second paper, we do look at the MTP joint, your uh, metatarsal pharyngeal joint, and it looks like there is some some good savings happening down in at that level. Interesting. Alrighty. Yeah. Well, future podcast then. Okay. <laughs> um, I think that about covered it with that. Um, did I have the other? Oh, one last question. So at the beginning of the paper, you made a prediction with regards to how much of an improvement would have to be altered in running economy in order to elicit a sub two hour marathon. So how, how did that whole thing play out for those people who were unaware of kind of how things went? Wait, is this the second paper? I don't think so. Oh man. Okay. Okay. So, <laughs> well, anyways, I'm going to jump into this <laughs> and say something. So one thing is we know that a 4% improvement in economy doesn't mean necessarily you're going to run 4% faster. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason why that is, is that when you look at the relationship between uh, speed and VO2, or you can think energy, we know it's not a linear relationship. It's actually slightly curvilinear. Mm. Uh, part of that is due to when you start running at really fast speeds, there's a lot more air resistance against you. So you have to exert more energy to run at those faster speeds. Um, and then there's also some intrinsic properties that I don't think people really come to a conclusion of why, because even on a treadmill, you'll see it slightly start to be a uh, curvilinear instead of linear. Um, so all, all to say is that we can say 4% improvement in economy, but we have to say, how much faster does that make you if we're going to break the two, uh, two hour barrier? Um, and what did we predict we needed? Uh, I think it was about 4%, am I right? About 4%, right? <laughs> and so is it a big surprise maybe now? Um, you know, that has been broken. Um, oh, the other thing I would say is we say it's 4% on average, um, but there was there was a, a range for how much people would save. Uh, we saw some people closer down to the 2% level and other people up to 6%. Um, wow. But the biggest thing is all 18 runners, you know, were saving energy in the shoe. Even if they thought the shoe was ugly, even if they told us they didn't like the shoe, Everyone saved. <laughs> Even if they were a heel striker Even, or a yeah, midfoot no striker, it didn't matter. Yeah, there was no difference in strike pattern either. Yeah, great point. It's crazy. That yeah. that part that part blew my mind. I was like, what? No way. That's so cool. So that yeah, that was super interesting to me. So yeah. those two studies, super fascinating. Uh, again, if anybody wants to read them, I assume they can just contact you to to kind of get a hold of that. Yeah, contact me. The one in Sports Med, um, our marathon prototype shoe. That one might be open access. If you never, if you can't reach it, send me a direct message on Twitter. I check it every so often. I'll send you the paper. Awesome. Well, sweet. This has been incredible. I I think I'm now starting to understand that third study a little bit better, just because uh, it's talking, I guess, a little bit more about why there's that curvilinear pattern instead of. I linear like pattern. the application. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I had to send it to you <laughs> yeah <laughs> well I will reread it and we'll be able to discuss that hopefully in the future and uh but yeah I sounds good they were just big chunks where I was like I don't know what any of this means <laughs> this is too much math for me 
but I'll give it another try. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. This has been so much fun. Uh, it's yeah, been, thanks for having me. This has been a blast. For sure. It's been such an honor just to just to talk with you a little bit. Um, one thing we didn't get to talk a little bit about was uh, like if you're still training and kind of what your what your training goals are. Mm-hmm. If I've got that. No. So what's, what's the case there? What's going on? Yeah. I'm, I mean, I'm still running, uh, running with a PhD is uh, a little tricky um, <laughs> and also right. Like pandemic, um, I can't get across the border to go race. Mm-hmm. Um, as nice as it would be to, you know, drive down. I'm in Vancouver, BC in Canada right now, as nice as it would be to go down to Seattle and race, you know, something at an indoor meet, I can't actually cross the border. Mm-hmm. Um, the border is closed. So that's made it a little tricky. Um, yeah, but you know, I'm having fun running, doing a little training here and there. We'll see nice. what 2021 brings. Gotcha. That's awesome. And uh, tell us a little bit about your what you're currently researching and kind of what you plan on on doing for your uh, for your dissertation. Right. Okay. So I left Colorado, really sad, up here in Vancouver at the University of British Columbia. Uh, I'm now working with uh, Bill Shield. He looks at exercise physiology and specifically uh, the respiratory system during exercise. Um, I'm still interested in mechanics. Um, He has a three-dimensional motion capture system, really similar to what we used in um, some of the studies we just talked about. Um, But it looks at how um, respiratory mechanics change with exercise. So I've gone from putting reflective markers on people's shoes to now putting them on people's chests. Wow. Uh, I'm still interested in energy costs, so but now I want to just say how much mo- how much as I said money how much energy <laughs> does just the respiratory muscle use right like that's how I think about energy <laughs> wow um, so yeah that, that's what I'm doing up here now yeah no that that makes perfect sense to me so I wrote a book about uh, uh, about how how to make your diet like self reliant it's called self reliant diet like I teach you how to calculate your caloric need and figure out you know whatever macros you want to set and but it's all based off this idea of calories or currency like it's Love it's it. money it's your body's it's money. money it's just money so it is yeah so i that makes sense to me so um how can people follow your work how can they reach out to you what's the best way to do that yeah um so super secret hard twitter name no it's just <laughs> actually a kip um, I'm actually a kip on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, I'm probably a little more active on Twitter. Uh, yeah, if you follow me, it's really sciencey and nerdy, so buckle down. Nothing wrong with that. Awesome. And perfect. Everybody go follow her right now because you'll get to see really cool stuff and you'll get to learn a lot. And yeah, and seriously, reach out if anyone wants you know a copy of the study, I'm always happy to pass it along. Yeah, makes for like a cool story that you can tell all your friends. Like, no big deal. An Olympian sent me some of her papers. Whatever, it's cool. Like, I think I think it's cool anyway. <laughs> awesome, Shalaya. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Cannot wait to uh, reread this paper and get you back onto the podcast again Kevin, in the future. Thanks. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Awesome. Alrighty, y'all. Thanks for watching and listening and stay tuned to next week's episode. Adios.